0: Welcome to Into Theology, my name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are continuing to work our way through John Calvin's The Institutes of Christian Religion. We're now in Book 3, and we're reading chapters 21 and 22, which are in the context of uh, Christ the Redeemer, uh, Book 3, and also in the context of the application of the benefits of Christ the Redeemer. In particular, we're looking at predestination, and Ian, you had a section that you wanted to read for us to open. Could you do that?
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting to note where he does place predestination in his world discussion, right? It's not linked back to like doctrine of God, where you might sort of expect it to be in terms of like this eternal decree. Um, But he's actually putting it in the application and that it's got the the implication to that. Then there's a certain degree of usefulness for this doctrine, right? And that's what he's going to get into in these two chapters is that this isn't just some abstract a concept that we're to be like speculating about, but it's something that actually we can know, we can know through scripture and it actually has direct bearing on our Christian life. And one of the ways it has direct bearing is, uh, from this quote that I'm going to read here, I've got it up on my screen. Um, and it's on, if, if you're using the battles Lewis translations, page 921, uh, it's that kind of first full starting of a paragraph there. So chapter, uh, 20. Uh, chapter 21 and i guess this is if you're not using that uh it's in it's section one um so calvin here says that uh how much the ignorance of this principle of predestination detracts from god's uh sorry um i'm reading it wrong so he's <laughs> sorry here
0: i, I like it no this is the the best way to read it we're talking about ignorance then you got totally lost
1: So he's you know, he's saying i i think it wrong and of course you're not going to edit this bit out so.
0: no no i can't it's too much work to edit this bit out <laughs> only when my kids jump into the screen and, and make a distraction right. it's the only way i can edit it out
1: <laughs> Let me start how much the ignorance of this principle of predestination i inserted that uh, detracts from god's glory so he's saying for ignorant this is a distraction from his glory how much it takes away then from true humility is well known yet paul denies That this which needs so much to be known can be known unless God, utterly disregarding works, chooses those whom he has decreed within himself. And then he quotes Romans 11. At the present time, Paul says, a remnant has been saved according to the election of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace would no more be grace. But if it is not of works, it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work would not be a work. If, to make it clear that our salvation comes about solely from God's mere generosity... must be called back to the course of election those who wish to get rid of all this are obscuring as maliciously as they can what ought to have been gloriously and vociferously proclaimed and they tear humility up by the very roots i'll just kind of end it there so so he's he's making an interesting point here in that um if if we affirm that predestination is not a thing if we're ignorant to the doctrine we're kind of in a way then having to imply at the very least if not be explicit that it's by the works and that it's something that we've done. And so there's a twofold robbing here. There's a robbing God of his glory and then robbing us of our actual humility. Because when we actually recognize I didn't, I had nothing to do with my salvation. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. God's the one who does it. I can't earn it in any way, shape or form. Um, then I become boastful and proud. And, and Paul's going to say, there is no boasting, right? Like that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And, uh, and so you know, one of the then kind of necessary consequences of the doctrine of predestination in us is that it's going to make us humble, humble before God, and then by default, humble before others. And and it's, you know, it's a bit of a cliche when we talk about Calvinism and how, you know, people who believe in the doctrines of grace are very ungracious at times. And if I think if we really understood uh, you know, that God had planned out our, our redemption before time. Calvin's going to get into Ephesians 1 a little bit later, I think in chapter 22. If we actually recognize this plan before time is before I could do anything, that then is going to humble me before God. And and then should I actually just make me a humble person altogether? Because even the good things that I do in this life in relation to other people are actually from God too, you know? So where's the humility, I guess?
0: Well, one thing that I... It's funny, it's kind of an obvious thing to say, but I was able to kind of piece together and make sense for myself is that the reason why grace is free is because God predestined us to salvation. Yeah, That might make sense to you here, but then but kind of tease it out for a second is like, Calvin, I think is saying that here with when it comes to works too. Um, If predestination is true, namely that God from eternity past has chosen you for salvation, without regard to any, foreseen works or merit or goodness in you. That's the reason why it's free. Any other scenario, it's no longer free. It's merited. And so like, when you think about our, like we think about predestination, sometimes we kind of abstract that as some sort of up there thing about God. And we think about free grace as as sort of like a free offer. Now, I think the gospel is, is offered to all people. I'm not saying that, but that's how, that's where we default. But free grace is particularly free in the sense we're talking about, because it is absolutely unmerited, wow. on the basis of God's predestine- predestination, which I, maybe that maybe that sounds too obvious to say, but I actually for me it's been kind of a profound way to think about free grace.
1: Yeah, yeah he says in, in numerous numerous places here where he talks about this is, is according to God's mere good pleasure, and like we don't want to think take mere that word there like oh, it's, it's merely this as though it was somehow insignificant and he's saying near is like to the exclusion of everything else like and mere it,
0: generosity
1: and mere generosity. he has all these kind of like various phrases that have that word in it and uh, the idea is that like this this is god's good pleasure his generosity alone there's nothing else that, that at bottom that's exactly what it is and, uh, and that's why grace is to be grace, right? That's why he's pulling from Romans eleven five and six, because it, for grace to be grace, it has to be this way. It has to be unmerited, right? So
0: I've been listening to um, th- these uh, like ex-evangelical or ex-Christian testimonies on, on YouTube. I'm trying to think through it, maybe write on it, but yeah, what I was listen- listening to today was, was basically saying, well, look, I was in Christianity because I was afraid I was fearing basically hell, but, but, you know, I come to realize this is wrong. She would argue. And then she talks about God as if, you know, if hell exists, if there's punishment, all this kind of stuff, it's, it's like abuse. It's not good. And maybe rec- recollect, like we don't really have a high view of sin. Meaning like if sin is really as bad as we say it is, then the only reason we're saved is generosity because we're lost. We are corrupt. We are. Um, all of our faculties are corrupted by sin to the point that we will to do evil frequently, and if if we're not restrained by civic virtue, by by government, all this kind of stuff, all of us, I think, would basically do much evil. <laughs> um, and so it's it's really interesting. We talk about like this mere generosity. This mere, it's it's not like everyone's kind of okay, and then God decides to make people even more okay. Uh, it's it's the case that we're, we're quite bad, objectively so. There is common grace that restrains us, but God is, is generous because he does much more <laughs> to some and not to others. And so that last phrase, some and not to others.
1: Yeah, the Calvin too, right?
0: yeah, that can be hard to understand because Calvin believes in something at least like double predestination, whether or not he uses that word exactly but he gets close in the same area that you read right above. He says this, we shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election, which illumines God's grace by this contrast. Then here's the contrast that he does not indiscriminately adopt all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some, what he denies
1: to others. I mean, even right before that too, right? He says, for they think nothing more inconsistent than out of the common multitude of men, there should be predestined to salvation, others to destruction, right? So he's, that's double predestination, right?
0: Yeah. And he'll get to Romans nine. Um, I don't know, I think in the next chapter, and I don't know if he actually gets into to Pharaoh and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, he. He does seem to believe in double predestination. Oh, he doesn't seem to. Yeah, he, okay, he does. <laughs> um, it's funny. I believe I've heard this before where some people were like, well, Calvin maybe doesn't. And it's like, I mean, if you read him, it's pretty straightforward that he does. Now, other reformers have different views. We talked about like Calvin uh, will criticize shortly Philip Melanchthon because Philip Melanchthon says, look, while uh, election is in the Bible, it's it's too hard to understand. And maybe we shouldn't really focus on it. Like it's one of those kind of mysteries of
1: God. So Calvin just, says, no, "No, you can't do that, right? If it's if it's there, you're robbing God, and you're robbing Scripture if you don't actually deal do with that issue, right? So yeah. You don't want to speculate, but it's there, and you have to deal with
0: it." Yeah. Um. Your mic suddenly just got quiet again. Is your book on the mic or something like that? No. man. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Wait. I'm just going to quickly pause. Okay. We're back after a short break. We just had to update a, a mic setting, I guess. Um, okay, so so what we you were saying, double predestination, he believes oh yeah, Phil Melanchthon.
1: There's like he's gonna know two people that respond to this. That he's gonna say those uh those are way too speculative, on it or those who hide from it. This is you can't be either.
0: Yeah, so those are too speculative, um, and, and so on, and those who maybe hide from it. So Philomanctin, I think, is is uh even maybe cited or hinted at uh, on page 924 in section three. Um who makes this rule? So he says um, at one yeah. point here. Nine and... Yeah, footnote nine. Uh, Therefore, to hold a proper limit in this regard also, we shall have to turn back to the word of the Lord in which we have a sure rule for the understanding. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit.
1: Love that image.
0: It is in which is nothing, uh, in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know. So nothing is taught, but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in scripture, lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. So he's basically saying if the Bible teaches it, we should teach it too. And when it comes to predestination, Calvin thinks there's too much to hide. Now, other reformers won't go as far as Melanchthon, but a guy like Peter Vermeely will say that the Bible emphasizes election to salvation or predestination to salvation, but doesn't really emphasize reprobation. So, yeah, maybe it's logically true, but we don't need to necessarily dive into that. Yeah. Calvin technically agrees by practice, like, because he obviously is more in the positive, but he, but like, as you read, <laughs> it's like, nope, yeah. he's predestined <laughs> to destruction.
1: Yeah, he, he says that there's, I, I i caught it a number of times uh in here where he's where he's talking about basically double predestination uh I'm trying to find another one uh anyway it comes up a bunch of times if i see it I'll, I'll i'll grab it but what's interesting is that um you know at the time of the reformation this was actually double predestination was heavily debated you know when, you, when people first hear predestination or calvinism today uh, they get all worked up about the issue of predestination as though that's the only view of of, of these matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, here you are uh, quoting Peter Martyr Vermigli and and um, Philip Melanchthon, who are two reformers who don't fully go with Calvin on this differently, right? As even you're noting here. Uh, another really important one is Heinrich Bullinger, who was um, uh, the the reformer who took over from Zwingli in, in Zurich after Zwingli's death in battle. And uh, and this actually be this is actually a bit of a point of dispute between uh, Calvin and and, and Bullinger. Uh, there's, there's a really helpful study on the whole issue uh, here. It's by uh, Cornell uh, Venema on, on Bullinger and the doctrine of predestination. And uh, and so he goes through and traces out the debate. And you know this is this is further to the argument that Calvin's not like the reformer. That like what he says sets the agenda because even on this issue that we so often closely identify with Calvin, there was major, major difference, but also dispute. Um, so um, Benema cites a letter here uh, that um, Bullinger writes where he, he's really actually kind of chastising Calvin. He's, he's writing it to somebody else, but here's a quote from it uh, where Bullinger says, "'Therefore, however many men are preserved, they're preserved by the mere grace of God, the Savior.'" So there's that language of mere grace. Um, so he's agreeing with Calvin there. Those who perish, though, so the reprobate, uh, do not perish by virtue of being compelled by what he calls a fatal necessity, but because they willingly reject the grace of God. Indeed, there is no sin in God. Both this and the blame for damnation inheres in us. So he's locating reprobation, it seems, not in an eternal decree that he calls fatalistic. Um, but rather, it's actually in the sinner who's going to reject God, and the sinner, in a way, reprobates itself, um, which is really interesting because if I understand Karl Barth right, he kind of says something similar. Now, there's all this other stuff on election and, and Jesus as the electing elected one. Um, so that, that's going to spin it. But nevertheless, like reprobation gets placed in us in these matters. Whereas Calvin is saying that no, it's actually, and, and then he's going to make an appeal. Uh, I think it's on. Um, I can't remember if it's on 925, where he starts talking about Augustine and uh, and so but Augustine seems to have a similar sort of view that Calvin's also appealing to. So, yeah, so it's not just because you believe in predestination doesn't mean you have to go to full on double predestination for what it's worth for our listeners. I actually believe in double predestination. I don't I think you're probably not so much there, but it just makes sense to me. But it is it is a difficult topic
0: yeah and i think too like there's you know even if you get in more uh as the reform tradition continues there's more there's lots of conversations about similar things so there's um uh concurrence sync wait synchronic concurrence i can't remember the right terminology offhand but basically the idea
1: (laughs) right there right
0: what is it it's all richard moeller stuff yeah richard moeller stuff but well not necessarily his but his recovering from a reformed thinker say i guess his too but there's a, there's a real idea, and what reform things are trying to affirm, both that God is free, in that He predestines all things, and yet humans have genuine free choice. And I think if we keep if we always try to kind of try to work out the details, we kind of misunderstand uh, our position as finite creatures and God's position as infinite creator. So I'm 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 actually more comfortable saying, look, I, I think God does in fact predestine all things because he's the I mean, every cause is traced back to him um and yet i think i i can't understand what that means because i'm finite yeah. really and i scripture seems to attest and so is experience that we have free choice as well so those two things i think we can hold not so much intention but just simply that we can't articulate the exact mechanisms because <laughs> of our finitude and our inability to understand things beyond basically the material soulish, uh, experience that we're in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and that goes in a way back to even Calvin's encouragement to humility, right? Like we're just saying, man, I don't know. Like you could then say, I'm locating some of this back in that speculative, uh, notion that Calvin is, is actually saying we can't do that doesn't necessarily make Calvin guilty of that either. Um, you know, he'd have, have arguments against that. But what he, what he also does too, oh, go ahead. Say I was
0: gonna say he says things like secret counsel and all this kind of language to show, I think as well, we can't understand it fully, yeah. I think.
1: Um, and then on 926, under number five, uh, he's gonna start really defining things, right? And he's gonna try yeah. to relate predestination to the divine foreknowledge he's going to accuse people who have a problem with predestination of trying to just locate it in underneath just the broad category of foreknowledge that like god knows uh in advance the way a particular person is going to go in relation to him so he knows oh you know why you know whatever date you put your faith in me and so based on that foreknowledge i have then predestined you um and calvin's like no you can't you can't do that right like that then does what it makes then the condition of of salvation based upon the the sinner not on god and so he's like you can't that's not foreknowledge here is not what that means he he actually defines it um in that second paragraph under number five on 926 he says when we attribute foreknowledge to god uh, we mean that all things always were and perpetually remain under his eyes so that to his knowledge, there's nothing future or past, but all things are present. And they're present in such a way that he not only conceives them through ideas as we have before us those things which our minds remember, but he truly looks upon them and discerns them as things placed before him. And this foreknowledge is extended throughout the universe to every creature. We call predestination God's eternal decree uh, by which he compacted with himself that he willed become of each man, or what he will become to become of each man, for all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some eternal damnation. This is not this is but, not really clear. Yeah. But he's making a distinction, right? He's being kind scholastic, making a distinction, right? So he's foreknowledge like, is really like it's not just God looking into the future. God is outside of space and time. Um, this is what we might describe as like God's eternal present. Like he sees everything all at once. And then, like, he conceives them these things through these ideas. And he says, But that's not what predestination is, man. Predestination is a decree. He seems to allude to what later will get developed as the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis when he says God compacted with himself. Yeah. And then he says that this is actually a foreordination. It's not just foreknowledge, it's actually foreordained to be the case. Um, so he's like, it can't be just merely a foreknowledge as it's generally conceived.
0: I wrote in the margin, uh, on my page margin, Boethius, because the, the definition that he gives a foreknowledge of God seems really close to a, was a sixth century Latin philosopher, Botheus? A Christian, but you call,
1: no. I... You call him Botheus? I call him Boethius. So I, I...
0: Okay, I might just be
1: mispronouncing him, Boethius. I don't know. Wait, I'm Yeah, I just... Boethius is very Augustinian and very Platonic. Yeah, he was a Roman senator. He uh, got from prison and wrote uh, for that incredible book called The Consolations of Philosophy. But yeah, he's very Augustinian.
0: Sorry, I'm looking at his name online. Oh, I, you're all right. I miss, I was just, I didn't write down the, the E I wasn't pronounced. I guess Boethius okay. I, I repent in dust and ashes, but Boethius anyways. So his work is, uh, he really defines God's, I think, vision like this. And it's interesting to think about too, in terms of predestination, like God is outside our experience of temporality because isn't hasn't changed. And so there's even a way to think about like his decree as sort of like, it's not the case that like sometimes some years ago, God was mulling things over like no. with his fingers like this and said, I'm going to create this world with these possible worlds, kind of the Molinist option, and then choose one that fits best for me. I mean, that's not even like that conception is so, it reminds me of, uh, of how Athanasius accuses the Arians by um, importing human things into God. Like you just can't. Like he's completely different than we are in, in this way. Um, okay, so we, we got a lot going on here in Kelvin. Uh, I like that definition. Um, predestination, we, we mentioned at the beginning, Maybe we should kind of end on this. Yeah, you, it, it does produce humility, but one of the things the Reformers were trying to do is to vouchsafe uh, salvation by grace alone. So there's, there's different kinds of... Uh, Catholic sensibilities on this, one thing that Calvin and Luther responded to was a group of people who essentially noted that if you do what is in yourself, God has covenanted to respect that and therefore give you the grace of justification. So they would never say that that would merit justification, but rather God just simply decided by covenant that he would accept even our our bad efforts. Um, Others didn't believe this. I mean, that's the crazy part about the Reformation is like if half the church reforms they're already kind of there you know what i mean um so you can't just say the roman catholic church believed this one thing because why did so many people actually find luther persuasive is because already people believed what luther believed he just said it better more clearly and showed the distinction and the corruptions more clearly um so one way to do that and luther does this in his freedom of the will uh, freedom of the will uh bondage of the will yeah the opposite <laughs>
1: you re- I think, you've been reading lots of Edwards.
0: Himself. Yeah, that was Edwards. Okay.
1: Edwards
0: Edwards. <laughs> yeah, I think Calvin has a book called The Freedom of the Will too. He writes against uh <laughs> <it> Peggy <Pig> yes?
1: <laughs> with the best yes. with the best name it's ever wish you could mispronounce.
0: <laughs> yeah. What a guy that what a guy to write against. Like if you had a literary opponent whose name Peggyus, it's just like nice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just by not making fun of his name, you're making fun of his
0: name. <laughs> Just by not bringing it up, you, yeah, you, yeah, that's that's right. So, um, anyways, all all this to say is, but but then the idea is like if you can do something in yourself, it, whatever, you, however you want to define that, maybe it's not theologically and formally by your works that you get the same justification, but it implies that you do something prior to. Whereas others like Dominicans or I guess Jansenist leaders or or um or Thomas Aquinas or whatever, we'll actually kind of eliminate that. So predestination is the the thing. And grace then comes. Then you enter into a state of justification. The Roman view would want to maintain that justification through primarily the sacramental system. The Protestant view is, well, actually, you already have the, the answer of yes at the beginning. And you have that because you've been predestined to salvation, completely free. And so you don't actually have to re- reach the righteousness of God through the sacramental system and through your efforts, but rather that yes is already you know ours at the moment of faith. And therefore good works subsequent to faith are, are merely because you are you want to do good. God's changed you. It's because of who you are now. A good tree produces good fruit. And so like we're talking about predestination, I think Kelvin has it in the right place in his book. Um, and he'll even kind of uh, talk about, um, he calls them papists, at one point. On, papis. Papis. on page 936. um, So th- we, what he's trying to do is to say salvation is by grace, and it's, it's gracious and good and, and humiliating in the positive sense. Whereas I think today we we primarily think of predestination as like a really interesting um, conundrum to think through. Yep. Something kind of scary or, you know, something in your cage stage Calvinist mm-hmm. time to talkable on the internet and and own the own Arminians, but but really it's not meant to be like that. It's actually meant to do the opposite. It's meant to exclusively say God saves you by grace.
1: Find people he quotes uh from Bernard because yeah when you're when you're talking about there about about the Papists, you know, it's like it's as if it's not as if know even then like to your earlier point too it's like it's not as if the 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 roman catholic tradition is uh you know there's a diversity there too right because the two oh here it is on page 922 yeah so here he's just i mean right through shot through these two chapters you get augustine everywhere right so great augustine who both roman catholics and protestants look to and then the next great kind of authority um, in the tradition after Augustine is Bernard, and like he quotes Bernard, he says, "How is it that the Church becomes manifest uh, to us from this when, as Bernard rightly teaches, it could not otherwise be found or recognized among creatures, since it lies marvelously hidden, both within the bosom of a blessed predestination and within a mass of miserable condemnation?" So there's your <laughs> there's your double predestination in Bernard, he's saying, right? But Bernard is. You know, if you read Bernard Clairvaux, you're like, whoa, like this guy is like a really strong predestinarian. Um, Well,
0: well, many uh, uh, Roman church people were. Yeah,
1: Aquinas. Yeah,
0: There, Uh, there is a pretty large misconception, I think. Let me put it this way. Christ promised to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Yet a lot of us assume that after like 400 or whatever, basically the church disappeared until a monk nail the door,
1: no.
0: um, 95 Theses. Which he,
1: which he probably didn't even do. Yeah. <laughs> I had one of his like secretaries paste
0: it. Paste it to the door, okay. <laughs> so but my point is though to say is like, actually, no, you have uh, tons of people who are, are, are genealogy, are, are kind of Catholic church. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is a great example. I mean, I think Thomas Aquinas as well. Of course we disagree, I mean, like even today, I would say that Arminians are, are believers, but I have a strong disagreement in certain areas. Hmm. Um, I, I myself am not a charismatic Christian, but I, my neighbors are charismatic, uh, well, presumably are. And uh, and yeah, we're great friends and I know they're believers, you know? <laughs> so it's, you. in fact, uh, medievals are, are that kind of different from us typically. There, there's areas in which we disagree, um, but there's mo- we actually agree on the main things together, hmm. Trinity,
1: gospel. But that's the issue right when it comes to Catholicity you're either you're either Catholic small C or you're schismatic right and it's like, if you're not if you're not able to rightly appropriate these doctrines kind of proper order, um, you know it's like Gavin Ortlund's book, uh, you know in "The hills to die on kind of stuff deals exactly with this right and so um to be Catholic is to recognize these things and not to be divisive over them, even though you can have, so ca- with Catholicity should come um, which is how you actually can disagree in an agreeable way, right? So you can have very, very strong disagreements and yet not be like a schismatic over them.
0: I think actually in some ways, the redefinition of tolerance in our society has affected a lot of us in more ways than we think. So toleration is, you're allowed to disagree with me, but I'm going to still disagree with you, but I'll tolerate you. Whereas today we're intolerant of tolerance, meaning if someone disagrees with you, you think it's a personal attack or it's an attack on everything you believe or whatever. When someone's just like, I'm actually all millennial, (laughs) like it's okay. We can be total friends. Like this is not a massive problem in terms of fellowship. It's definitely an important topic to, to work out. Don't get me wrong, but Anyways, I think this is this would be a good place for us oh, to. Well, start.
1: let me just say one thing.
0: Yeah, say so your final first thing. We'll stop with first, this. So it. So better be good.
1: Because um, you alluded to that title of his, "Book tolerance, tolerance," you know, the modern view of tolerance. And he makes a really good point. He says to tolerate actually requires disagreement, right? Because I actually have to tolerate now the person that I disagree with. The modern view of tolerance today, though, means, no, you have to agree with me in order to be tolerant. And he's like, that doesn't mean anything, man. That's not tolerance anymore. I've actually lost tolerance because now I actually agree with you. I don't have to tolerate you anymore. So the ability to, to, to actually perform tolerance rightly actually is predicated on the notion of actually having a disagreement. It's just you disagree in a tolerable way. I mean, I can bear with you in our disagreements.
0: Yeah. Um, I like it. Acts 15 is a great example of this. And we can end there. All right. We'll see you uh, next time. I can't remember what we're reading next time, but it's going to be probably the next chapter after I think, uh, what are we in? Chapter 22, we finished today. So probably chapter 23. And uh, we'll see you guys next time.